Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Well, the news cycle does not slow down. It is full of excitement and lots of uh, fascinating things to talk about today. Uh, Also, election results and some breakdown from the German elections that are going to have some impact on uh, Germany's relationship with Israel. Uh, And uh, it's another opportunity to talk about a multi-party proportional system, which I always think is interesting, but it it gives you some insight into Israel's politics, uh, looking at other political systems that are built on similar principles. But uh, first and foremost, Iran. Now, I have to say, and I, I really hate saying I told you so. Um, I, it's not fun for me, uh, you know, comically joking about being the prophet Isaac because I, you know, I'd say, you know, if this happens, this and this will happen and uh, people don't listen. And then, you know, there we go. But I, I wrote an article last year explaining that if Biden, Joe Biden won the election, uh, we would have a war with Iran. There would be uh, rampant anti-Semitism, including violence on the streets of American cities. I said there would be censorship of media and free speech and uh, spending like you wouldn't believe and inflation that, that results and, of course, high taxes. Some of those things a lot of other people predicted as well. But here we are. Uh, it's, it's looking increasingly like war with Iran. Uh, efforts to try to negotiate with Iran have come to nothing. Iran has been using it as something of a delay or stalling tactic. But now with the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan, Iran has no longer uh, any concerns or fears about U.S. intervention, apparently, because they are going uh, forward full bore. Uh, meanwhile, Prime Minister Bennett, in the, speaking at the U.N., talked of how he is, you know, Iran's nuclear program is reaching a critical point and that uh, Israel is going to have to take action soon if no one can prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. What, could, uh, what shape could that action take? We've uh, you know, I've discussed a little bit of that before here on the podcast. Uh, we could have uh, an Israeli bombing run that bombs uh, Iran nuclear facilities. Uh, the Iranians would use that as excellent propaganda to fire up their side for uh, you know, intensifying the conflict in the Middle East, unfortunately. But uh, it would at least delay Iran's nuclear program uh, so we'll we'll see. Obviously, Saudi Arabia is more than happy to share the airspace as long as Israel is hurting Iran's interests. And, uh, you know, Bahrain and UAE are now uh, normalized. They've normalized relations with Israel and they're now allies and friends. So Israeli planes could refuel over the Arabian Gulf and then head into Iranian airspace. So this is... Um, It's going to be interesting. And with the stealthier F-35 Adir fighters, Israel has a means to get into those nuclear facilities. But also note that Israel has a couple of Dolphin II-class submarines, German-built of the U-32 type, that are uh, very quiet diesel boats that can operate offshore of Iran, and they can launch surface-to-surface cruise missiles uh, out of their forward torpedo tubes, and they'll be able to uh, cause some consternation in Iran as well. And there's very little Iran can do to retaliate against such firepower. So this is going to be uh, interesting to see. I, as always, hope we can find other ways to solve problems than warfare. But unfortunately, uh, with America being in such a weak position and having an administration that no one respects, 
uh, here we are, right? I mean, we're kind of stuck in this situation where if, uh, if no one fears the U.S., then our allies are going to have to act uh, on our behalf because they're going to have to do the things that we don't have the strength to do. And it's going to be unfortunate because obviously once Iran is bombed, they'll have a propaganda coup with it, uh, which is a sad thing. I mean, obviously they, they'll be, uh, their nuclear program will be hurt, but the propaganda coup, the propaganda victory is almost more important to them than the nuclear program. Uh, they'll get their, uh, you know, all of their various proxies from Hamas to Hezbollah uh, and the Houthi rebels and everybody else fired up to go on the offensive. And uh, with the U.S. in a weak position, they could win a lot. Uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, the Arabs are increasingly siding with Israel against Iran. Uh, Iraq is now possibly going to normalize relations with Israel. That's interesting. A, a council of some 300 clerics got together recently and sent a letter recommending normalization. And Prime Minister Bennett has said he would welcome such normalization. So obviously Israel is eager to normalize and relations and make peace with whatever Arab countries we can. So this is going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. Um, if it comes to war, it's going to be violent and it's going to be bloody. Uh, the U.S. vote to reload the Iron Dome system is going to be very important now, obviously, because with... Uh, you know, the possibility of having to strike Iran, there are going to be a lot more rockets and missiles that are going to be flying over Israel. So we'll see how this shakes out. All right, Naftali Bennett also took the opportunity while he was at the UN to hail uh, the uh, vaccination efforts that Israel has made and to talk about uh, how they've been able to press forward with um, these alternatives to lockdowns, that Israel has not uh, undergone a third lockdown. They just work with the virus, uh, with the vaccination and treating the virus and uh, are not, you know, using the, the same strictures that Australia and other places are adopting. And uh, that, that's a fair point. Obviously, a lot of countries are adopting stricter measures on lockdowns, uh, even as they are, you know, have proven many times over to be ineffective. The virus continues to spread. Uh, this is a really unfortunate lack of cause and effect attention here that people have that if you, you know, do if you take an action and it does not produce the effect that you intended, don't repeat the action. It, you know, repeating the same action over and over again, expecting different results is how Einstein defined insanity. OK, uh, that's just not going to work. So you're going to have to change how you do things. And that's going to require people to wake up and uh, consider the alternatives. So Israel is definitely doing it right more than they're doing it wrong in avoiding lockdowns and working with, uh, you know, to improve the healthcare situation. Uh, whether the vaccines are being especially effective or not, uh, vaccination is certainly preferable to lockdowns. And so uh, that is the path that the Israeli government has taken. So that is, um, that is something that uh, Naftali Bennett spoke about at the UN and uh, another, another act, you know, another, another thing that is to Israel's credit. Speaking of Bahrain and the UAE, uh, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, who is also Prime Minister in rotation with Naftali Bennett, uh, opened the Israeli embassy in Bahrain recently. Uh, he will also be meeting with the King and the Crown Prince which is unprecedented. This is the first time an Israeli foreign minister 
has ever met with the ruling families of these countries. Uh, and this is a huge step forward also. The first commercial flight from Bahrain has landed at Ben Gurion Airport. So com commercial flights are now open between the two countries. So this is a, an amazing time. Uh, when you think about the enmity between Israel and the Arab states for so long, that now we are seeing the, the thawing of relations, uh, the opening of embassies, the meetings with top-level leaders and royal family members. It's just an incredible time. This is awesome. Uh, also, Israel participating in the Dubai Fair, uh, an Israeli, uh, uh, an Israeli uh, presence will be felt with a, a showcasing of Zionism and its impact in the world and how Israel was created. And this is going to be uh, for you know, viewers who are there, mostly <laughs> are going to be non-Jews uh, attending this conference, one would assume. So that's uh, going to be an interesting step in uh uh, in the right direction. Uh, so uh, Expo Dubai now has a Zionism uh, exposition. <laughs> Just wow. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd ever thought it would happen. And I am, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's a great thing. All right. So uh, I, as you know, I've been doing a lot of work on social media, uh, especially on uh, the all of the excitement with uh, the, the anti-Semitism we've had in, uh, in the world lately, uh, and talking, talking about the Palestinian cause and trying to break that down so that people can understand that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Uh, one of the things that keeps coming up is, you know, well, how come you don't uh, condemn the settlers as much as you do the Palestinian terrorists? Well, I'm going to take just a minute to knock that one out right here, right now. Uh, first of all, uh, I have condemned violence on the behalf of Jewish residents of Samaria and Judea several times already in this podcast. And uh, those of you who are fervent podcast listeners, my, my loyal fans will remember, not that many podcasts ago, I warned about heated right-wing rhetoric in the post-election period leading up to the establishment of the change block government. And there were warnings from Shin Bet as well that maybe it's time to tone down the rhetoric. People are getting a little bit too fired up. So when I think Israelis are in the wrong, I'm willing to call it out. But let's, let's talk about this issue, the so-called settlers, right? You, as soon as you, you move across a certain line, imaginary line, you become a settler. No, these are residents. These are Jewish people who live in ancient Jewish land in Judea and Samaria. And uh, we have now had an incident where a group of these Jewish residents were throwing rocks at a group of Palestinians, which, you know, supposedly a three-year-old boy was injured among them. What a three-year-old boy was doing walking around with these guys, I don't know. But in any case, uh, uh, <clears throat> this, uh, this incident is an excellent demonstration of what we're talking about here. So Jewish residents threw rocks at a group of Palestinians and they've been arrested, six of them, right? Six Jewish residents who so much as threw stones at a group of Palestinians have been arrested by the Israeli government and will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, right? Because Israel has the rule of law. Among the Palestinians, as occasionally happens, we'll have a terrorist who sneaks into an Israeli community and slits the throats of the entire family, the father, the mother, uh, young children, two-year-old, three-year-old, you know, boys and girls uh, in their house, 
all in one night. And this, this happens from time to time. Uh, and then that terrorist is arrested. And the Palestinians celebrate this person as a martyr. Their family gets a pension. They get money for uh, the terrorist acts of their family member. Uh, and uh, they become a, a martyr. They become someone who is celebrated and loved and everyone should follow their example. Okay, so in Israel, if you so much as throw rocks at another person, regardless of whether it's an Arab or a Jew or a Muslim or a Christian or whatever, okay, you throw rocks at someone, you're going to jail. All right, now, when it, occasionally it happens that one of these residents will kill an Arab, uh, they likewise, unless it's self-defense, they likewise go to, go to jail. They go to prison, okay? Meanwhile, the Arabs celebrate mass murder. The people who commit mass murder... Uh, who will murder whole families in their beds, uh, these people get celebrated. So uh, there's no comparison. But do I condemn this when it happens? Absolutely. There's no reason to be out throwing rocks at people. That's not cool. Okay? But, you know, throwing rocks, right? Uh, occasionally there is a shooting or a, a killing that happens. Occasionally uh, a mosque is uh, set fire to or uh, otherwise vandalized. Uh, this happens. Oftentimes, it's Arabs who do this trying to blame Israelis. But when the Israeli government finds that there are Israeli civilians involved in these, uh, they respond immediately. They arrest those involved and uh, they go to prison. Okay, so there you go. Uh, that's just, I mean, that's just reason. <laughs> okay, uh, so people trying to draw some kind of moral equivalence between occasional violence on behalf of uh, Jewish residents of ancient Jewish land of Samaria and Judea and the constant, celebrated, uh, beloved cause of genocide, the, the Nazi-inspired cause of genocide on the part of the Arabs uh, against Israel and the Jews uh, is, I mean, there's just no comparison, right? There's no way. Okay, so this is something that, you know, attempts to draw moral uh, equivalency here, just not going to work, not going to fly with me. Nevertheless, when I see Jews doing something wrong, I condemn it. I have many times in this podcast, and I will continue to do so. Right, now that we're back from the break, I can move on to discussing the German election results. Uh, it's been far more interesting than I thought it would be, I have to say. Uh, it, I thought this was going to be the, the same old, same old, but apparently there's some movement to create some change as a result of this election. So we will see how that pans out. Uh, as I've mentioned, uh, discussing German elections is important uh, in part because, of course, they're going to impact Germany's relationship with Israel, which is important, after all. Uh, three of Israel's submarines, actually all of Israel's submarines, the three new submarines were built uh, in Germany with significant subsidies from the German government. Uh, the German government helped to pay for, you know, submarines to help Israel's defense. Now, obviously, those submarines being built in Germany by German workers, they're, they're subsidizing their own industries, but for Israel's benefit. So this will have some impact on Israel. And depending on how coalition results uh, and talks go, there could be a chilling of relationships between Israel and Germany, especially if the left gets... Uh, a stronger say in government, right? Now, um, also, as I've mentioned, discussing how multi-party proportional systems work gives us a better sense of how Israeli politics works. You get a bit of, you know, a little comparison. So next time I talk about an Israeli election or uh, coalition building process or what have you, you'll have a better sense of how it's done sort of internationally, you know, broader sense than just this is how Israel does it. 
Uh, Germany has tended to have large parties, and for a long time, Germany was basically a three-party system. You know, you had the CDU, the SPD, and the FDP, right? So the CDU is the Christian Democrats, uh, center-right, not, not right-wing in an American sense. Uh, actually, you know, for, for most of the, the time up to this point in Germany, I would have compared the CDU more to the Democrats than any other American political party. <clears throat> uh, but uh, the SPD is the, the red left-wing party. They're distinctly uh, more left in their leaning, socialist in, in their uh, approach to government. Uh, also, the FDP, the Free Democrats, are the neoliberals, or what's called, uh, you know, neoliberal in Europe. Now, I think this is kind of funny because liberal means something very different here in America. And uh, one of my one of my friends who came over from Germany was complaining. Uh, he was at a Republican Party meeting that I happened to be attending, and he looks over to me and he says, uh, Isaac, when I when I tell people that I'm a neoliberal, they look at me funny, like I'm I'm something something's wrong with me. What what's going on? And I said, Oh. Yeah, just say you're with the free market party, because in America, liberal means something different. Uh, although, you know, we've, we've traded this negativity around the word liberal, uh, and I think it's a little bit uncalled for at this point. Uh, I consider myself a working class liberal. It's how I was raised. And as far as I'm concerned, that's still where I'm at, uh, even though what, what was liberal then is now on the right in American politics, uh, as far as I see. So uh, like Ronald Reagan, it, it's not that... Uh, I left a particular party, but that party left me. So, um, in any case, the, the neoliberal free market, uh, pro-business, pro-free enterprise, con, you know, economically conservative, we might say in an American sense, political party is the FDP, the, the Free Democrats. Uh, there's also uh, Die Linke, which is you know far-left party that is formed basically to protest because um, the SPD, the center-left party, has been forming coalitions with CDU, what are called unity governments, between the larger two, two larger parties. And so they're, they're out there kind of protesting to the left. Uh, and then there's Alternative for Deutschland. And AFD is an anti-immigration party. <clears throat> uh, Germany's been flooded with immigrants from Syria recently, uh, especially, but also from other parts of the Middle East. And uh, Germans are rightly concerned about this. Uh, there's a lot of vandalism of churches and synagogues. There's been a, a great rise in anti-Semitic violence and anti-Christian violence. And there are many cities in Germany now where women cannot walk out at night, late, late at night, because they, uh, they are not safe. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, rape and murder, unfortunately. You know, all predictable. You might say somebody warned them, but, you know, that's, that's the unfortunate uh, situation with European politics. To, to say anything against that is to be racist and, and you know, fascist and neo-Nazi and all this kind of thing, when in fact it, it's just you know, seeking to protect your own communities. All right, so final results being in. Uh, Germany's uh, Bundestag, the lower, lower house, is not, uh, does not have a fixed number of seats. Uh, they predicted there would be about 730 seats, but it also depends on voter turnout and this kind of thing. So ultimately, there were 735 seats. So 368 seats constitutes a majority, right? You have to have uh, 368 to govern the country. So uh, of the election results, uh, the SPD, led by Olaf Scholz, uh, the finance minister, current finance minister, won 206 seats with 25.7% of the vote. Not a great result. Uh, SPD has, when they've won in the past, like when they, for example, when they were led by Willy Brandt uh, in those days, uh, they did much better than this. 
okay? But uh, they have come out just one and a, uh, 1. 1.6, a little over 1.5% ahead of CDU, the Christian Democrats, who've been leading for the past 14, uh, 16 years, excuse me, the past four elections. For the past 16 years, Angela Merkel of CDU has been the chancellor. And um, <clears throat> they've had their poorest result since the end of the Second World War. That just tells you where CDU is right now. Angela Merkel has destroyed CDU. That's, that's basically the, the headline from this election based on the results. With 24.1% of the vote, they have 196 seats. Uh, Guna, the Green Party, has 118 seats, 14.8%. FDP has 92 seats, 11.5%. Uh, uh, AFD has 83 seats with 10.3%. Dilinka has 39 seats with 4.9%. So this is, this is the election result. All right. Uh, <clears throat> as I've described before, like within Israel, uh, you have right blocks and left blocks, and, and you start this coalition building process. Usually in Israel, we have this thing where, uh, because there are so many parties, uh, the parties recommend one leader to start forming a coalition. And I talked about this back when the Israeli election took place uh, in, uh, I think, episode 15 or 16, where uh, the greater number of members of the Knesset, the incoming Knesset, the parties with the greater number of votes total, recommended Bibi Netanyahu to form a coalition. Well, in Germany, generally speaking, the party that wins is seen as the leaders in forming a coalition. Something different is happening this time around, and this is an amazing thing, and I'm really excited to talk about it because these are things that just don't happen in multi-party proportional systems generally. Uh, and that is that the Green Party and the FDP have already begun preliminary negotiations toward forming a coalition amongst themselves. They're two of the smaller parties, and together they could make either SPD or CDU the kingmaker. They're the kingmaker to both of those. One of those parties could end up leading the country if this group sided with them. And that's what's being called the Citrus Coalition. I, I, in Germany, I think I mentioned last time, uh, they have clever ways of talking about building coalitions based on the party colors, right? So the FDP, their color is yellow. And the <laughs> CD, uh, the uh, Grüne Party obviously is green, right? So uh, green and yellow, that's the Citrus Coalition because those are... The citrus colors. And that gives them uh, the opportunity to choose either the stoplight coalition, which would be, you know, with SPD, right? Red, yellow, green, stoplight. So uh, that's kind of a funny way to talk about that coalition. Or the Jamaican coalition that Angela Merkel could not form four years ago, uh, which would be uh, CDU, the black Black is the color for CDU, and uh, green and yellow. And that's called the Jamaican Coalition because the Jamaican flag has black, green, and yellow on the Jamaican flag, right? So they call that the Jamaican Coalition, and uh, obviously the Stoplight Coalition is red, green, and yellow. That is fascinating. So Christian Linder and his party and are, are talking, the, the FDP, that is, the, the Free Market Party, are in negotiations with Grüne, which is led by uh, Annalena Baerbach, and they're, they're together, you know, they have 210 seats, right? Uh, that's uh, a significant portion of the 368 needed for a majority. And they could form a coalition with either of the two major parties, considering that SPD's 206 or CDU's 196 would be enough. Now, considering that SPD just gained 
1.6% more votes than CDU, it would be reasonable and logical um, to suggest that the Citrus parties, once they've reached an agreement amongst themselves, might choose SPD as the leader of the government just because they gained the upper hand in the election. Uh, and for the Green Party, that would be somewhat beneficial because the Green Party is left, right? And so SPD would be a left party leading the coalition. And basically the Free Democrats then would be sort of the right wing counterweight, the balance to the coalition that would keep the coalition from being too far left. And the too far left part is the part that impacts Israel. If, let's say, you know, you had a coalition, and, and thankfully there aren't enough seats among the left wing parties to do this, but if you had a coalition that was, say, SPD, uh, and uh, Green and Delinka, you know, the far left party, which is uh, represented by the color purple. So if you had a, a red, green, purple coalition, um, perish the thought, that would be very bad for Israel. That would mean a serious chilling of relations between Germany and Israel. Now, I don't need to tell you that Germany and France rule the European Union with an iron fist. I mean, what happened to Greece a few years ago should be an example for everyone. Germany basically took over the Greek government and forced policies on the Greek. It was just like the German invasion of Greece in 1941, but this time without the tanks. Germany basically invaded Greece politically and forced the Greek <clears throat> to adopt certain economic policies. Now, those were sound economic policies that will help Greece recover economically and, and bring back uh, their economy so that they'll be able to repay the debts that they owe Germany, granted, but I'm of the mind that democracy should have prevailed. If, if the Greek want to continue to elect far-left governments and they don't want to adopt sound, sane, rational economic policies, then they deserve the privation and starvation that follow. I, I, I hate to say this, but it's one of those things. Like, if you, if you don't want to work, you deserve to be hungry. You know, it's different if you can't. I mean, there are people who are disabled or, or for whatever reason, they, they are not able to work. That's a different scenario. But if you are able-bodied, able-minded, and able to go to work, and you choose not to, that's not my problem, okay? That, you know, so I, again, you know, the, it, I'm not saying that the Greek left-wing governments were right, but if the Greek themselves had voted for political parties that were going to adopt the German policies, that would have been one thing. In any case, Germany dominates the EU, all right? So if there were a chilling of relations between Germany and Israel, that would mean a chilling of EU relations between Europe and uh Israel, excuse me, a chilling between Germany and Israel. Uh, so this is, this is an important change here. This is, this is important to what's going on. And um, a traffic light coalition would be okay. It might be just a little bit chillier toward Israel than Angela Merkel's was. But SPD has been part of the government, successive governments with Angela Merkel. Three of the last four governments were between uh, SPD and CDU. So I, I don't expect a significant shift to take place in terms of relations between Israel, especially with a traffic light coalition, because the FDP, while Israel is not one of their primary issues, uh, free, you know, uh, they're very pro-trade. And so obviously the biggest concern we have here is would the European Union continue to, you know, would they go in the BDS direction and start to isolate Israel economically? Even small changes can make a huge bit of difference. Uh, Israel's agriculture products, their technology services, a lot of their goods that they manufacture uh, go to Europe. And 
you know, Israel doesn't trade that much with its neighbors, right? The, the Arab countries are slowly opening themselves to trade with Israel, but that's a slow process. And their economies, uh, outside of the production of oil, are relatively small compared to Europe. So Israel needs European consumers. Now, Israel also trades quite a bit with the United States and with American consumers, but still, Europe is really important to, Israeli, to the Israeli economy, and Germany sets the tone for Europe. So we'll see how this shakes out. Traffic light coalition, Jamaica coalition, who knows? Uh, I'm not a great fan of uh, Armin Laschet, uh, the leader of CDU. I really don't think he should be chancellor. Uh, the guy is, you know, he's, he's for whatever's good for him politically, and he's against whatever's against, you know, bad for him politically. Uh, you know, he doesn't have any kind of, I want to say, moral backbone, moral fiber. Uh, he's just a pure politician. Uh, and if they were led by someone like uh, Mr. Soder from Bavaria, who would be a much stronger leader for CDU and someone who would really represent the right, I would be more favorable toward that. However, if Soder were leading the uh, CDU, there'd be a lower likelihood that the Green Party would be willing to work with them. Uh, so what's behind all of this? What's going on here? Uh, the Green Party is a, an environmental party, but I think we in the West misunderstand the Green Movement a little bit. Uh, while the Green Movement is very uh, environmentalist, they also try to balance that with being pro-working class. There's a, there's a distinct communism, right? Green is the new red. There's a distinct leftism. And in Europe, the leftism uh, tends to favor workers a little bit more than it does here in America. American lefties say that they favor workers, uh, but then they adopt policy after policy that destroys the working class, right? Uh, high taxes, you know, we, we saw a lowering of corporate taxes in 2019 that meant uh, a massive expansion of the workforce and uh, rising wages for the first time in decades in America. That was, that was where we were in 2020 uh, before the lockdowns. We had a vast increase in prosperity among Americans, uh, average Americans. Uh, that was a reversal of, you know, decades of bad policymaking that uh, harmed working class workers, right? And now uh, they're talking about raising taxes, right? Well, so the Green Party there balances their green enthusiasm, their zealousy for greenness with uh, support for working class. They balance the green with the red, let's say. And so uh, the main things the Green Party really wants right now is less dependency on Russia. A lot of people are concerned because Angela Merkel has shut down uh, Germany's nuclear plants and has made Russia, uh, made Germany more dependent on Russian oil and gas, right? And Russia loves that because if Russia has uh, something they can hold over Germany, they have something they can hold over the EU as a whole, right? Uh, Vladimir Putin is very eager to get any kind of edge, any leverage he can pull on anyone, right? Uh, so the Greens are not for that. Uh, on the other hand, they do want to move Germany off of coal-burning uh, energy. Well, there are options there, natural gas and that sort of thing, and they can buy that natural gas from the United States, unfortunately at a premium to Russian gas, but if they could buy a certain amount of American LNG, liquefied natural gas, that can be shipped over there, we're already shipping uh, LNG to Eastern Europe, for example, then uh, they can counterbalance their dependency on Russia and thus weaken Vladimir Putin's leverage. And then they could come to a situation where if he, for example, decided to cut off the gas, to try to force Europe to adopt a certain policy or to coerce the Germans into doing something for him, then uh, Germany could just say, well, we'll just buy more gas from America and life is good, right? You know, 
Israel's about to enter the natural gas business as well with a pipeline to Europe, and that would allow Israel to prosper a little too. So the Greens are, are uh, kind of in that situation. They're anti-Russia, which is kind of interesting, and the left-wing... Uh, you know, the, I, I thought it was kind of funny. I have to share this joke with you because it's been passing around among my circle of friends and my dear wife that, you know, with the Green Party, with uh, Annalena uh, Baerbach, that there's this uh, left-wing vegetarian German leader who's anti-Russia, right? Should we be scared, right? Uh, hopefully she won't grow a, a Charlie Chaplin mustache and start screaming a lot on the radio and, and on TV. But... Uh, it is kind of a funny thing, you know, it's, uh, we're in the, kind of in the midst of an internal conflict in Spain that involves Russia and, and the European Union uh, over uh, the desired independence by regions like Castile. And the, you know, and in the, in the, in the meantime, right, we, and Catalonia and this kind of thing. Uh, and in the meantime, we have, you know, this going on in Germany. Anyway, there are some fun parallels to situations that existed 90 years ago. Uh, anyway... <clears throat> Uh, so green is anti-Russia. The FDP wants to develop the German economy as much as it can, uh, obviously. And so if they can work that out, uh, then that'd be a pretty good counterweight. And then if they join a coalition with the SPD, then Olaf Scholz will be chancellor and the FDP and Gruner will have a strong influence on the German uh, political system. That's probably the best they're going to get. Uh, if they decided to go with a uh, Jamaican coalition, <clears throat> moving away from SPD, they're going to need some kind of an electoral, some kind of excuse because SPD won the election. So they'll have to say, well, we tried to negotiate with SPD and they won't work with us. <clears throat> so um, there would have to be some kind of excuse, right? Because the voters did give SPD a little bit more confidence than CDU. And CDU lost this. I mean, this was their election to lose and CDU lost it. Right. Uh, I mean, Laschet was a bad choice for leader and Angela Merkel has absolutely destroyed the, the CDU, the Christian Democrats in Israel or in Germany, excuse me, uh, over the past 16 years that she's been chancellor. So uh, glad to see her go, though. <laughs> I'm looking forward to anyone being chancellor other than Merkel. And I think people in Germany are, too. Uh, this has happened before. Helmut Kohl was elected in 1982 and for 16 years he was chancellor, and ultimately he was charged with uh, corruption and bribery charges and, and uh, convicted of those uh, later on after he left office. But as I've said before, with the reunification of Germany circa 91, 92, uh, and all of that going on, as it got into 1994, it kind of made sense for him to seek a fourth term in office with a lot of big things happening in Germany at the time. So I'll say that much. But for Angela Merkel, there really was no excuse for her to have a fourth term. And uh, if, uh, if, you know, Martin Schultz hadn't sacrificed his career at SPD, who was a promising alternative to Angela Merkel up to a, for a while there, if he hadn't sacrificed his political career and um, joined SPD in a fourth coalition, you know, in a, in a, well, the third SPD, CDU, but anyway, by, by joining another unity government, he had to resign as the political leader of SPD, thus sacrificing his political career. Uh, political suicide, right? And uh, SPD joined with Merkel for one more term. And that's why uh, now uh, it's less likely that SPD would look to a unity government with CDU if there were a viable alternative, which the Citrus parties, Grüne and FDP, are working on. So we'll see how that hammers out in the future. Uh, but now I think you have a good flavor of how multi-party proportional politics can work. 
some really interesting and different things happening over in Germany. So we'll see how that goes. Anyway, uh, as always, I say, Lahitraot, goodbye. Thank you.